open up to the book of Romans, chapter 7. All right, so we've been walking through uh, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Um, One of the things that I've sought to do in order to help us not miss the forest for the trees is in different ways um, zoom out before we look at our text and just take in the flow of where we are in, um, in Paul's flow of thought. So the way I'm going to do that this morning is I want you to notice something in chapter 6. So hopefully you've gotten to 7, but just flip back to chapter 6 for a second. And you'll see there in verse 1, he begins this by asking a question, what should we say? Should we continue in sin so grace may multiply? So he asks a question. Then he answers that question in verse 2 through verse 14. Then look at verse 15. Should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? So from verse 15 on and including our text, Paul is answering that question. He gave the first part of his answer to that question and we looked at it last week. And he's giving the second part of his answer to that question and we're gonna look at it this week. And you can see he picks up another question. Look down in chapter seven, verse seven. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. And then he's going to answer that question. So he's structuring his teaching around this kind of form of dialogue, this hypothetical dialogue. And he's saying, you're probably anticipating that you're going to ask this question. I'm going to answer it for you. So all that to say, as we read our text in chapter 7, Paul is answering the question, should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace. Chapter 7, follow along as I read, verse 1. Since I am speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. Now Paul is not laying out a doctrine of divorce and remarriage and so on. He's not talking about literal marriage and you see it in verse four. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter of the law. So many of us are probably familiar with the traditional wedding vows. We used, uh, Paula and I used the traditional wedding vows on the day that we got married, and it's a, I take you um, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish from this day forward until death do us part. So death dissolves the marriage. It's this covenant, right? So Paul is picking up on that kind of language. He's using a a marriage metaphor here. Now, it just so happens that Paula and I uh, celebrate our 25th anniversary tomorrow. Now, um, I didn't choose, yeah, great, I'll take it. Um, I didn't choose this text, you know, to to piggyback on our our calendar. 
it would have been a terrible choice to choose this text to piggyback on our 25th year of marriage because there's a marriage in Romans 7 to be sure, but it's a terrible marriage. It is, it is marriage to the law. It's a marriage that you want to get out of, right? That's what Paul is talking about. So here, if you back up and you take in chapter 6 and chapter 7 as a whole, Paul is using two primary metaphors or primary analogies. He's saying that we are no longer slaves of sin, chapter 6, and we are no longer married to law, chapter 7. These are the two predominant metaphors he's working with here. You know, there's a lot of um, confusion about the Christian believer's relationship to the law of God. I I walked through this, and it it led to a very difficult season in my own Christian life. So I've told some of you this story in various ways over the years. So when I went to college, uh, the Lord really grabbed hold of my heart in some wonderful ways. And my faith became my own in a much greater way, and I was passionate to serve him and follow his calling and live for his glory and influence my friends in a positive way. And that was in contrast with some of my high school years. But it was just all kinds of things were firing in good ways in my soul. Uh, Well, when I graduated from college, I bumped into a segment of Christian teaching called moral government theology that majored on keeping God's law and keeping God's commands. And it was actually associated with a movement called sinless perfectionism. And I read some of the materials of the scholars of this movement who lived all up in Illinois, and I was like, I've never discovered this, but I want to live fully for Jesus. I want to fully obey him in every way. So, so I looked them up online. Actually, there was no online. I looked them up in the, in the yellow pages. And I called one of the leaders and said, could I come up and spend a weekend with you and the others who write these books. And they said, sure. And I drove up to Illinois and I brought a big camcorder that I was lugging along, a big massive 1990s camcorder. And I set up a tripod in each one of their houses and just started asking them questions. Teach me, how do I do this? How do I live sinlessly before God? And one of them, I'll never forget, he said, he said, Matt, you can live sinlessly before God, and you can be justified before God on the basis of your obedience to him. And, and he said, let me just show you in the word. And he took me to Romans chapter 2, verse 13. It's going to be up on the screen here. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So he said, there it is in black and white, right there in your Bible. It's not just hearing, um, but it's doing the law that makes us justified before God. We are accepted before God by doing the stuff, by keeping his commands. I didn't know how to respond to that. I did not know how to untangle his citation of Romans 2.13. I didn't know that he was playing fast and loose. I didn't know he had ripped it out of its context, the the flow of Paul's argument in chapter 2. I didn't know any of that. All I knew was I said to him, um, I said, that creates tension in my mind because I've been reading Romans and I've been studying Romans. And in chapter three, so I said, can we just flip over? And we flipped over in our Bibles to chapter three, verse 20, and I read these words. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. And I said, so how do you put this together if if it means that doing the law makes us justified before God? And then Romans three says, 
You'll never do that. You'll never be justified before God on the basis of your obedience to the law. How do you untangle that for me? And he gave me an answer that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I was very confused by it. But at the end of the day, I felt like you you know more than I do. You are older than I am, older in Christ, older in life. You probably know what you're talking about. You've written a lot of books. I just just graduated. Um, And so I, I said to him, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try like I've never tried before to obey every command in God's word and to do it fully and to put my head on the pillow at night and say, I have perfectly obeyed God's law today. And you know the worst year of my Christian life? It was that year. It was so, I was so exhausted that year. I was so tired. I felt so condemned. I lived all year with a kind of low-grade fever of shame, of guilt, because it was like slamming my head against a wall. It was like this massive weight was hung on my shoulders. And what I didn't understand is, what relationship does the Christian have to the law of God? The great 18th century pastor, John Newton, one of my great heroes of the faith, he said this, at the bottom of almost all religious error, is a misunderstanding of the role of the law of God in the life of the Christian. Enter Romans 7. And it wasn't until the the following year that I started to enter into Romans 7, study Romans 7, and next thing you know, by God's grace, my soul started to sing again. All those cracked places dry, I started to see the beauty of what God says about us being not under the law, but under grace. So we're gonna unfold this in two parts. Paul unfolds it that way in two parts. Number one, bound to law. Bound to law. So law is the big idea in Romans chapter seven. It's a word, law and commands are words that he uses 29 times in 25 verses. So he is talking about law. He is fixated on God's law. God's law in Romans seven is not simply an expression of his moral will. God's law is personified as one of the ruling powers over those who are in Adam. So that's the broader context of five, six, and seven. God's law is one of the, one of the big guns who rules over Adam's realm. You got this in your notes. Those in Adam are governed by three, death, sin, and law, which might seem like a surprising group of three. You know, classic case of one of these doesn't belong because death and sin, they both seem to be generally bad guys, right, if we're personifying things. Death and sin, and then the law, how is law running with these? How is law hanging out with death and with sin, ruling over those who are in Adam? Well, law here in Romans 7, it means the Mosaic law, right? So Paul teaches in this chapter that the law becomes an unwitting tool of sin, that it actually provokes us to sin more. It's not the law's fault, the fault's in us, but nonetheless, the law becomes an unwitting, unknowing instrument in the advancement of sin. Just look at verse five. For when we were in the flesh, there you are in Adam, the sinful passions aroused through what? Through the law. We're working in us to bear fruit for death. In other words, the law kind of makes us want to sin. You can see that in life. All you need is a five-year-old. Just get yourself a five-year-old. Doesn't have to be yours. Just borrow a five-year-old for a day, 
right? I mean, you've got a space where, where the five-year-old can play or draw pictures. Maybe there's a desk over in the room and you just say, here's construction paper, just have fun, right? And you say, but just don't touch this bottom drawer. What's the only place? Now, suddenly, said five-year-old is uninterested in everything on the desk except what? The bottom drawer. It's, it's the only thing that he or she wants to get into. The law arouses, that even saying, it arouses us to sin. It says, like, what are you holding behind your back? I want to see that one thing that I'm not allowed to see. You want to get in on that, right? Well, well, the apostle Paul says that's something that because we have indwelling sin, the law prompts us to want to do the things that we're not allowed to do. But the law can go sideways in our hearts in all kinds of ways. Not just that way. The law can fuel self-righteousness. That's what Paul's going to say later in Romans chapter 10. He's going to say, that's the, uh, that's the stumbling stone that my kinsmen, the Jews, tripped over. Is they were unwilling to receive God's way of justifying them, which was by grace. And they insisted that we do it the hard way. They insisted we do it by our own, picking ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And Paul says, that was your downfall. You insisted on doing this your way. You compared yourself favorably against the Gentiles and you boasted in your own righteousness. Or the law can go sideways for us by just simply the, the, pro, the repetition, the cycle of, of command and condemn. And you repeat that cycle enough and eventually you just think, why bother? Why even try? I've been trying to justify myself before God, and I'm so tired, why even bother, right? The law is represented as a husband in Romans 7. What kind of husband? A condemning and merciless husband. How do you know that? Because the same verb that Paul uses about the tyrannizing rule of sin in chapter 6, verse 9 and the tyrannizing rule of death in chapter 6, verse 14, he uses the same verb about the tyrannizing rule of law in chapter 7, verse 1. The law rules over, masters, dominates, lords it over people. It's an illustration about marriage. So, so let's climb all the way into the Apostle Paul's illustration about marriage. And just imagine you're a counselor, okay? You're a counselor and a wife comes in for counseling and, and you say, what do you want to talk about today? So you, you booked an appointment. Let's, what do you want to talk about? And she says, I want to talk about law. And you say, who is law? And she says, it's my husband. My husband's name is law. And then you say, okay, well, well tell me about your husband. What's it like to be married to law? And what does she say? She says, it's crushing. It is, it is destroying me to be married to this man, the law. Verse one, he rules over me as long as I live. It feels like captivity. It doesn't feel like I belong. It feels like I am bound. Verse two, I'm bound to law until he dies. And I need you to know something about my husband, law. He never dies. He lives forever, right? So, so leave the illustration. The law of God's not going anywhere, it lives forever, and you're bound to law, Paul says, until that husband dies, you can't have another husband. You can't be married to anyone else. And, and Paul, earlier in this same book, he says, I'll tell you what law does. Law points at everything that's wrong in you. It's not, 
it, it's not law's job to help you pull off the Christian life. It's there to point, to command and condemn. That's the cycle of what law does. It's really good at what it does. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It says, I want you to know that's sin. I want you to know that also is sin. This thing you did and this thing you didn't do, there's sin. And the law keeps pointing and pointing and pointing. And then the law does what? It just shuts the whole planet down. In chapter 3, verse 20, everyone is silent before a holy God because the law said, be quiet, you got nothing to say. There's nothing you can do to make your relationship with God right. I'm just here to let you know. And so the planet is silent without excuse and guilty and exposed before God. So bear in mind, this is in your notes, the nature of God's law is not to comfort but to command. The law doesn't talk about grace. <laughs> It's not law's job to talk about grace. It's not law's job to pat you on the back and say, good job today. It's, you know, the, the, the cops don't pull you over and thank you for obeying the speed limit. That's, it's not their job. If you see the lights, you've done something wrong. So that's law's job. It tells you when you've done something wrong. It doesn't talk about mercy. So coming back to verse five, living with the law does what? It arouses sinful passions. That's not hard to imagine, right? How does that work? Imagine living with the law. Imagine this metaphor of law is husband. And you wake up and law doesn't make you breakfast in bed. Law doesn't give you love notes. Law doesn't whisper sweet nothings or give you surprise gifts. Law demands. It says, glad you're awake. Here's what you're doing today. I need all this done by end of business day, right? And, and law, let's say somehow you pull it off and you turn in all those demands, you check all those boxes. The law didn't even say thank you. It just says you should have done that in the first place. What do you want, thanks? That's how the law speaks. It's crushing. And then if you do your best to pull off the whole list and you come up short by one task, what's the thing that law is going to talk about with you all night? That one thing. How could you not do that thing? That was probably the easiest thing on the list. How could you fail me so epically today? That's how law talks when we're under the law. And, and what starts happening, so you climb into that metaphor of marriage, what starts happening? You start looking and saying, man, it would be so life-giving to not be married to law. Is there anybody named Lawless out there? Is there any, like, contrast to this person that I'm living with? And so we move toward lawlessness. And that's not good either. That's not salvation either. You ever seen a Christian blow out of Christianity? They tend to blow way out, don't they? They, they blow to the opposite end of the spectrum, right? And how often the story, when you hear them tell their story, ex-evangelical, hashtag ex-evangelical, you hear them tell their story and so often they're saying something like, I never understood why there were so many rules. It was such a suffocating environment to live in that church, to live with those Christians. They just constantly kept telling me, you're not doing this yet? How are you still struggling in that area of sin? We talked about that in our last small group meeting, and yet here you are still struggling with that. I read a statement from a woman who's not a Christian, although she was raised as a Christian, and she says, the reason I'm not a Christian goes all the way back to my childhood, and here's what she wrote. I knew all the prayers, recited each one loudly and at the proper time. My dad taught them to me, but he never told me why I was saying them. Never explained why I had to kneel until my knees were dented and bloodless or why I had to hit myself on the heart asking for God's forgiveness. What had I done except want out of this boring church? 
except wiggle around too much, except leave with my mother when she broke his heart. Translation, all I knew was kneel, pound my heart at the appropriate times, beg for forgiveness, and don't wiggle. And she says, and, and, and so doing this will make God love me? Is that, is that, how, is that how this works? And eventually she just said, I'm, I'm done. He, he told me to do all the things, but he never told me why. You ask the woman in that counseling room in Romans chapter seven, and you say, what's it like being married to the law? And she says, you feel, um, you feel trapped. You die if you stay, and you die if you leave. You die if you stay because the environment is so condemning that over time you, you have to get out. But then you die when you leave because you can't leave the law with impunity. So there's trouble if you stay and there's trouble if you leave. A married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives and law will never die. So I'm bound to him forever. I know Christians who are so fixated on obedience to God's commands, it looks like Christianity, instead of giving them life, is killing them. You ever known a Christian like that? It's like, is there, if you're looking from the outside in and you see their story, it's like, is there any joy in that thing you call Christianity? Because it looks like it's destroying you. It looks like it's weighing you. It looks like it's a cloud of darkness hanging over your life. That, that's why Paul teaches the way that he does. He's saying, theology matters. I need you to get this because this is going to set your soul free. You're not under the law. This isn't just so you can pass a theology exam for seminary. I need you to get this so you can make it to the end. I need to get you to get this so you can sing amazing grace and feel it firing on the inside of your heart so you can breathe the clean air of grace alone. That's what Paul is gunning for. That's what he's after in Romans 5 to 8. Bound by law gives way to this belonging to another. Bound by law, belonging to another. From chapter five through our section, Paul has been saying, Christian, I need you to know you're not what you used to be. You are not in the realm that you used to live in. You are not still living in that old age. You are in a new realm. You are in a new age. By faith, Christians are united to Christ. His death ended our old life and his resurrection starts a new life. We talked about that and how baptism commemorates that, even dramatizes that. You go down into a watery coffin and you leave the old man down there and then up comes a new mat, up comes a new person who is not in Adam. Adam's in the ground. Now we are in Christ. We've got a new way to be human. Now we're going to bear the image of Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. Look, this is not dutiful religion. There's, this is not kneel at the appropriate times and pound your chest at the appropriate times. No, this is he takes your old life and he leaves it in the ground and then he brings you up to raise to walk in newness of life so that the judgment of God against your sin fell on another. Your substitute inhaled your punishment on the cross. That's such good news. 
Will you believe that good news today? Will you repent and follow this one savior of the world, this one hope, not another one's coming. We'll never need another one. He is the all-sufficient, comprehensive, stem to stern savior. And he silences the voice of the law. For once, the, the law normally walks into the room and everybody gets quiet. In the gospel, Jesus walks into the room and the law, for once, is silent. And he says, ah, there is therefore now no condemnation. You just get to sit there and be quiet because they're not under you anymore, bound to you anymore. Our employment under sin was terminated and our marriage to law was dissolved by death. And you might say, dissolved by death, I thought law couldn't die. Yep, you died. You see how Paul reverses the language that he used. Initially, he's given the impression that you're married to law and if your husband dies, that's when you get to go free. But then when he applies his illustration to the life of the Christian, he says there's another way for this marriage to be dissolved. You get to die. You die to the old self and now you rise to a new life. You died in the realm of Adam. You died in the realm where sin calls the shots. You died in the realm where law is husband and oppressive. Look at it, verse four. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you were put to death in relation to the law through the body, that is through the death of Christ, so that you may belong to another. That's ringing the church bells. The wedding bells are ringing there in verse four. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may, and here comes the family, bear fruit for God. There's a new kind of fruit that's being born. In the last chapter, the fruit that was being born is, is shame and the outcome is death. Here, we're bearing fruit for God. Verse five, for when we were in the flesh, in Adam, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. What is Romans 6 and Romans 7 coming forth. It is coming to the Christian with the strangest words of celebration. Romans 6 and 7 say to the Christian, great news, you lost your job and your marriage. You no longer work for sin anymore. And you're no longer bound by law. You're no longer married to law. And it doesn't leave you there. It says you're no longer bound to law and you can belong to another. You were bound, that's the Christian story. I was bound, and now I belong. So that you may belong, verse four, to another. There's a new wedding in this text. Now remember, this passage is not the doctrine of Christian marriage. That's not what he's talking about here. It's an, marriage is an illustration of the Christian life. Marriage is an illustration of the two eras, of the two realms. Here's the point of Romans 7. I put it this way. It's not in your notes, but I'm just gonna say it to you. The Christian has died to the law so as to be set free for a new and fruitful relationship with Christ. That's the point. The Christian has died to the law so as to be set free for a new and fruitful relationship with Christ. Now, there's a caveat here. We're gonna pick up on the caveat a little bit in Romans Seven, but here's the caveat. I've put it in your notes, even though I'm not gonna really fully unpack it. This doesn't mean God's law is now irrelevant for the Christian, but that our relationship to the law is gloriously 
changed. So think about that with me. You ever known somebody who, while in that relationship, there was a certain defining characteristic of the relationship, and then that defining characteristic changed, and so the relationship itself felt completely different. So the first time you met your boss was the day you had the interview, and then you knew that person as your boss, and then you changed to another company or to another area of employment, and that person becomes your friend. The relationship feels so different. It's the same human being. They have the same name. They live at the same home address. They still work at that place. But your relationship feels so different because it's not a boss relationship. It's a friend relationship, right? So my, uh, my worst subject in high school was uh, chemistry. I, I hated chemistry. And, um, and to make matters worse, Mrs. Tiliakis, my chemistry teacher, lived across the street from my house. So, um, so I was staring at chemistry all the time. I'm playing baseball in my front yard. There's chemistry. There's, she's right there, Mrs. Tiliakis, uh, uh, across the street in one house over. And, and even worse than that, her husband was the principal of Grace King High School. So there, all, all the crushing things about my high school experience lived in that house, literally across the street. And so when Mrs. Tiliakis was driving by my house on the way wherever or the way back from wherever, I felt like her gaze was just glaring at me. I felt like her face, now I'm not saying that she actually did this, but I felt like her face was saying, what are you doing outside? Why, are you, wh- wh- why is there so much joy in your life? You, you should be suffering. You should be inside. You failed the last test. You're probably going to fail this one too, right? It was, it was like her face, without even saying a word, it's like her face was just communicating this aura of condemnation. It was just a heat coming off her face, right? And then something happened. I graduated from Grace King High School in 1993. I died in the realm where Mrs. Tiliakis reigned over me, right? And her scathing look of chemistry was, was bent in my direction. I died in that realm, and then I moved on with life, right? I, I went to college in Texas. My wife and I got married, and my mom was renting the house out in the intervening years until in 2002, in a twist ending, we bought that house on Elmwood Parkway, and now I'm raising my own kids in that same front yard across the street from Mr. and Mrs. Tiliakis. They still live there. I still see them. But here's the thing. They weren't Mr. and Mrs. Tiliakis anymore. They were Alex and Connie. They brought over eggs and brown sugar. Like the, the relationship was so different. Now, I never called them Alex and Connie. I, call them, I would call them to this day Mr. and Mrs. Tiliakis. Right? But, but she acted more like a Connie. From that moment on, the relationship fundamentally changed. Our relationship no longer involved a transfer of shame, real or imagined. It was just not there. I was Matt and she was Connie. So think about that here. How would you live toward God if his law was no longer a voice of condemnation? What if God's law was still in your life, but everything felt different now? What if it brought over eggs and brown sugar? (laughs) What if it felt different, right? Here's the thing where that analogy breaks down. Mrs. Tiliakis didn't really condemn me, right? I imagined that. The law really does. (laughs) The law really does look scathingly at us in our sin. Here's the question I want to leave us with is, does your Christianity feature law as the most powerful force for Christian transformation? 
Because to that point, Paul wants to say, I got something better for you. It's a, it's a far more powerful force for transformation. It's called grace. When you are under the law, you can't perform. It's just gonna point, command, and condemn. When you are under grace, you're gonna get power. You got a new identity. You're not in your old identity of Adam. Good news, Paul says, you died in the realm that was governed by three, death and sin and law. Now what happens in a church? What kind of environment does grace produce in the church? The gospel doesn't stack burdens on tired sinners. It lifts burdens. Grace lifts burdens. The gospel doesn't create an environment that feels heavy and joyless. It rings the church bells. It rings the wedding bells Sunday after Sunday in our lives. Like, friends, we have a gospel. Let's believe it. Let's live in the good of it. Let's tell it to the ends of the earth. Let's let that gospel motivate us to global mission and to a life of holiness.